Hiya, handsome. Come to join the party. Hey, party people. Welcome to the Patrama Party, where we do a little dance, make a little love, freak out, wonder where this is going, look at our phones for a text every three minutes, and cry in our car on the way to the store. I'm your host, Remy Ramirez, and this week we're talking about the father-daughter wound. It is chill. It is no big deal. It does not eat at our self-worth at all. (laughs) Yeah, just kidding. It's like probably the reason I've never really had a boyfriend. So, and I think at its core, it's just this super fucking primal wound. Like it gets to the center of us being rejected or unseen or unwanted by our fathers as women. I mentioned this on the last episode, but I was in Al-Anon for many years, which is a program for the friends and family of alcoholics. And I had a sponsor who said something to me that hit me so hard in the moment and has never left me. I was talking to her about my relationship with my dad, who is an addict. And she looked at me square in the eyes and she said, it isn't natural for a father not to love his daughter. That disrupts the natural order of things. Fathers are supposed to nurture and protect and adore their daughters. And I think the reason it hit me so hard was because I had never known anything but emotional rejection from my dad. That has always been such a huge part of my story and my mental health journey, but also my identity. Like, I feel like it has in part defined who I am, which I know, like, we're not supposed to say that. (laughs) We're supposed to be like, I'm not defined by my wounds, but like also definitely would have had a very different life if I'd had a loving dad, you know, like, we know for a fact, scientifically, that our early relationships with our caregivers set us up to see the world in specific ways and to show up in our relationships with others in specific ways. So I don't know. I just feel like one of those memes that's like some of y'all didn't have a scary as fuck, emotionally unavailable, narcissistic, substance addicted dad. And it shows <laughs> I I was 100 percent that girl who grew up terrified of her dad and such a huge part of my story, which I'll get into in a minute was about trying to figure out different ways to get him to act like he loved me. So in other words, what I'm really trying to get at is if you do feel like the father-daughter wound is a big part of your story, you're in the right place. But first, let me introduce our guest, who I'm so glad is here to help us get some clarity on how we work with this incredibly deep issue, couples and family therapist, Camila España. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Remy. I'm so glad to be here. I'm honored. Oh, well, I'm so glad you're here. I'm pumped to get into this topic with you. But first, let's chat about your astrology a little bit. You are an Aquarius sun, Gemini moon, and Leo rising. So you've got fire and air going on in your top three. So do I, by the way. I'm really interested in that Gemini moon. I also have an air moon. So Gemini is air, so you know. The moon rules your emotional landscape and your subconscious impulses. That's like what the moon oversees. Gemini, what a lot of people don't realize about Gemini is that, yes, its its symbol is the twin, but originally the symbol of Gemini was two identical pillars, which later gave way to the twin, right? Because they were identical people like later that became the twin, but those 
pillars originally represented the gateway to knowledge because Gemini is ruled by Mercury, the planet of the mind and of communication and of thinking, making Gemini one of the signs most interested in learning, in gathering information, in discussing the material. It's one of the signs of the intellect. So when you have Gemini in the moon placement, it can look several different ways. One of those ways being heightened creativity because Gemini expresses and the moon feels. So you have someone who expresses feelings and expresses the subconscious, which is sort of what art is. But you also often see a person who wants to think about feelings, learn about the subconscious, talk about the emotional realm, which is exactly what you do as a therapist. So let me ask you, have you always had a curiosity about emotions or was that something that kind of emerged later in your life? No, I think I've always been interested in emotions. I think um, I communicate and I think a lot about emotions. I, I Perhaps that could be a reason why I became a therapist and particularly maybe why I became a couples and family therapist. Hmm. I think I would have to do more reflection on that. You certainly gave me something to think about. And I mean, it's very Gemini of me to, to, <laughs> to say that. But you now you gave me something to to take home, Remy. Oh, well, I'm so I'm so glad. But yeah, I think that's so interesting having Gemini in that emotional space. I have a Libra moon, which is also an air sign. Libra is air. And so, yeah, there's this like, we really want to think and talk about emotions. So this is going to be fun for you and I to pair up mm -hmm. on this episode. Um, okay, cool. Well, then I'm going to jump into my experience on the topic. While I do that, feel free to jump in with thoughts, feelings, a haiku, you know, should the inspiration arise or you know, whatever, just sit back, chill, get in Shavasana, whatever you're feeling. Either way, at the end, I'll turn some questions over to you. How does that sound? Beautiful. Cool. So my dad and my mom divorced when I was six months old. So I don't have any memory of them being together. My mom divorced my dad because he was physically and verbally abusive. He was selling drugs. I later learned. I didn't know that for a very long time. But also he was doing all kinds of drugs and drinking. He was cheating on my mom. I don't remember this happening, but I can't remember not knowing this story because my mom told me this when I was really young, that he pushed her into a big cactus that we had in the front yard, which was sort of the end for them. My dad wasn't physically abusive with me, really. He did spank me some, but there was never a time in my life until now that I wasn't afraid of my dad. He was verbally violent. There was lots of yelling. There was lots of brow beating and criticizing. And there was also lots of not giving a shit. So in terms of the raging and the verbal violence, one of my earliest memories of my dad is from when I was three. My mom, my sister, and I met him at a Mexican restaurant. And we were little, obviously. And, and for some reason, didn't have booster seats. And so when they brought the chips to the table, my sister and I sat on our ankles to try to reach the chips. And my dad just went fucking ballistic. He started screaming that we were bad kids. We were so disrespectful. And like when I say screaming, as I remember it, people were staring. And my dad was was so angry that he left. He left the restaurant because of how bad he thought we were being. 
So that's sort of what it was like throughout my life. My dad was super volatile. It was like living in a powder keg being around him. I never knew what was going to set him off. And I was always afraid, always nervous, always on edge around him. But there were also a lot of moments where I felt like my dad didn't see me at all. Like I just didn't matter to him. And I recently worked through a specific memory around this with my therapist because I realized it had had such a deep impact on me. So when I was eight, my mom, my sister and I moved to L.A. from Austin, where I'd always grown up and where my dad lived. And I was really sad in L.A. those first couple of years. I was really struggling. In retrospect, I was really lonely. My mom was working all the time and she was gone. So I was alone a lot with my older sister and my my sister hated me. She just hated me at that age. So she was really mean to me. She was physically violent with me. And I felt like I just wanted to move back to Austin. But the only way to do that would be to move in with my dad. And I had never lived with my dad before. But I was so sad all the time that I finally just called my dad and asked him if I could live with him. And he said, okay. And so I moved to Austin. I was living with him for about four months before my mom sent my sister out to visit. And in those four months before my sister came out, I had tried so, so hard to get my dad to act like he loved me. I fawned harder than a fucking baby deer. Okay. (laughs) Your girl was on her best behavior 24 seven. But when he wasn't yelling at me, it was just like, I really wasn't there. Nothing I did impressed him. I remember I got straight A's on my report card and I came bursting into the house. I was so excited and out of breath from racing my bike home to tell my dad about my grades. And I ran into the living room where he was watching TV and I was like, I got straight A's. And he didn't say a word. He didn't even look at me. He didn't turn his head. He just kept watching TV and kind of like nodded a little bit. Like me being there was just kind of nothing. And I certainly wasn't going to be celebrated by my dad. That was not ever going to happen. But I kept trying to find ways to please him, whether by doing everything right or being really over the top nice or by sort of just like disappearing. So I wasn't in his way. So anyway, that's some background. Now it's summertime. My mom had sent my sister out to stay for a few weeks. And one day my dad my sister and I all walked to the store and on the way back from the store, I just kind of started noticing that on, on that whole trip, my dad was only talking to my sister. He wasn't including me at all. And as we walked, I started to walk slower so that I fell behind them. And I did that because I was feeling uh, really unimportant and I wanted to see if he would notice that I wasn't there. And the more he didn't notice the farther back I lagged to the point that I was like a full block or more behind them. Like I was really far behind them. And my dad never turned to see where I was, never looked. Even when they got back to the house, my dad just went inside with my sister and closed the door. He was not, he was just not like, where's Remy? And when I finally got to the house, I was still trying to get this need met, this need to matter and to feel important to my dad. So instead of going inside, I went into the backyard and sat next to a tree to see how long it would take him to wonder where I was. And I was out there for like, I don't know, maybe like a half hour, 45 minutes before my dad came outside and yelled for me. So 
that gives you a snapshot of what it was like growing up with my dad. I could never do anything right. I was afraid all the time and I felt really disposable. Like I could be there or not be there. It didn't really matter, which is why with the few moments when my dad did say something sort of nice to me, I clung to it so hard. And it was like, it made all the other awful moments okay or something. It was how I convinced myself that my dad loved me underneath it all. In terms of how my relationship with my dad has impacted me as an adult, I'll start with that story because it's fresh. I just worked through this with my therapist. So I recently had a very casual hooking up situation with someone and we had agreed that he would let me know if he could hang out on a specific night. Let's say it was a Tuesday. He was like, yeah, I'll let you know on Tuesday if I can hang out. But Tuesday came and went and I didn't hear from him until like 1230 in the morning. So technically Wednesday. And he was like, oh, shit, sorry, I forgot to hit you up today. And I responded the next day and I was like, hey, OK, cool. Yeah, um, that hurt my feelings that you forgot. And I think we should just be friends, which, you know, maybe would have been a totally fine response, except that it just wasn't fully authentic. Although I will say I was proud of myself for saying that my feelings were hurt because that's something I really have not been able to do in the past. But it still wasn't fully healthy because then what happened was the dude was like, oh, shit, I'm really sorry. You know, I've never done casual before and I think I just made it too casual, but I understand. Totally get it. And if you want to hang out in the future, let me know. And then I was even more upset because what I actually wanted was for him to go oh shit, Remy, I'm so sorry. Can I please fix this? Please don't leave. I want you to stay, right? I wanted to run away and have him go, wait, where's Remy? I want Remy, right? Remy is important. I was basically doing what I did on that walk home with my dad and my sister. I was disappearing, hoping that this guy would notice and be upset and want to get me back. I wanted him to show me that I was important. So that's the first impact piece I'll name. I, I, I don't just naturally feel important, especially with the men I date. My go-to is to assume that I don't matter to men and it can come out in these sideways ways, these sort of passive aggressive ways where I'm not even really aware of what I'm doing in the moment, but there's this need to feel validated, to feel like I matter operating under the surface that tricks me into, and that's like specifically for me, this pattern of running away to see if anyone comes after me. And I don't know if anyone else feels this way. This is kind of like tricky, but I've never really felt like the word worthy has resonated for me when people are like, oh, you don't feel worthy of love. That's not true for me. I think everyone's worthy of love, including me. And I, I I think I'm great but I feel like men can't see it. It's the difference between feeling worthy and feeling important, which I don't know, maybe it's splitting hairs, but for me, it feels like I can be and feel worthy, but if absolutely no one around me acknowledges that to me, my mental health isn't going to flourish, right? That's sort of how it feels for me. I feel worthy, but I don't necessarily feel important because for me, important hinges on outside recognition. When I told my therapist that the other day, she was like, you know, of course, 
are you important to yourself? And I was like, honestly, I, I think so. Yeah. Like I take good care of myself. I treat myself well. I prioritize my healing and my joy and my needs. But if I feel like I don't matter to the people around me, eventually shit's going to kind of fall apart because we need people, right? Like we need love. Feeling loved isn't the cherry on top. It's a fucking necessary part of our well-being. We need to feel loved to thrive. And I think for me, I just wasn't loved by my dad and it wasn't ever safe to ask for love. So as I've gotten older, I've really tapped into one, this realization that I don't feel important as a result of this father-daughter wound. And two, that I learned unhealthy ways of trying to get proof from my dad that I was important. And then I just kept carrying those same behaviors into adulthood. And those very behaviors likely have a lot to do with why I've struggled in my relationships with men, because if you're always running away, you can't build intimacy. Two more pieces that I want to name that are both relevant to this story with my dad are one, a fear of men and two, a super sensitive fear of rejection. My dad was obviously a very unsafe person for me when I was growing up, but I actually didn't really have any warm, loving, masculine figures in my life as a little girl. And I wanted to add this because I think it's relevant to this topic. My mom was really open about the abuse she'd experienced as a little girl. She told us all about the ways that her father and stepfather had damaged her. Her father, my biological grandfather, left the family, left her mom alone with three kids when my mom was just six months old. So my mom was carrying a huge abandonment wound. And then her mom remarried this man who was just a monster and a tyrant. And he visited every imaginable abuse on my mom and her siblings. And my mom would talk to us about that in detail when my sister and I were really young, which, by the way, that is also a form of abuse. That's called parentification. I have two episodes on it if you haven't listened to those and you think it would be helpful. But those stories of my mom's father-daughter wound coupled with my own dad really created this sense of fear for me around men. Which, by the way, is another way of saying the father-daughter wound can be intergenerational. For me, I learned that men were not to be trusted, not kind, not loving, not safe, not honest, not sincere, don't see women as human, only see them as a source for sex. And I really spent a lot of my life subconsciously avoiding men. Even in my career, I didn't want to work with men. I only ever wanted to work with women because I felt so unsafe around men. And I'll, and I'll be really honest of the handful of times I worked for a dude, I was almost always sexually harassed or verbally abused. I think only once I wasn't, I don't know if that's just me. I don't know what the statistics are on that, but having those experiences in my twenties and early thirties on top of my dad, on top of my mom's experiences with her father's, I'm still to this day working through that fear of getting close to men or interacting with men. And in terms of a fear of rejection, the feeling of disappearing to see if your dad notices and then he doesn't, that's one type of rejection, right? It's the neglect rejection. It's a rejection that rests on what doesn't happen that's supposed to happen. Another kind is like what happened at the Mexican restaurant that day, right? It's a more overt, direct kind of 
rejection, being told that you're bad, you can't do anything right. My story with my dad involves both of those versions. So I came into adulthood feeling incredibly sensitive to rejection. And so, for example, this dude I was having this casual hookup situation with being like, oh, I forgot to hit you up. First of all, yes, that's not cool. It's not respectful. It's not nice. But I think someone who isn't so sensitive to rejection might have had a different emotional response to it than I did, right? In my romantic scenarios, I'm in a trauma response the instant I get even the smallest whiff of rejection. For me, it almost always involves some version of running away, whether it's being like, okay, I'm out, you know, like we should not do this anymore or acting like I don't care. You can't hurt me being really closed off on the surface while on the inside or like behind closed doors, fucking falling apart and crying constantly and being a total wreck. And the part that gets really murky for me with that, and I want to name this too, because it's the struggle I'm having now, is that because I run away as a trauma response, I don't always know the difference between what's me running away and what's me not putting up with bullshit. What's me having high standards and what's me expecting people to cater to my traumatized needs that I actually need to take care of on my own, right? Like what's me having a healthy boundary And what's me freaking out and disappearing because I'm triggered because I'm so sensitive to rejection from this deep father-daughter wound. In my relationship with my dad, there was was pretty much only toxicity. So I never got to see what a healthy boundary with a man looked like. I never knew what it felt like to genuinely be important to my dad. And so I don't know when I'm experiencing that from others. A lot of men have offered me crumbs, but it was like 10 crumbs instead of the two crumbs that my dad gave me. (laughs) And so I'll I'll think it's way better. I'm like, oh, this is love, baby. And, And that sort of brings me to the next way that this wound has impacted me. And that's denial as a coping strategy. I've talked about this before, but my dad didn't love me. As I've learned about narcissism and how it works, I've realized that that's because he's not really capable of love. But of course, children personalize everything. And since my child brain couldn't handle a reality like my dad does not love me, I learned to be in denial as a way of emotionally surviving my relationship with my dad. I learned to tell myself things like, He does love me. He just doesn't know how to show me or this is how he shows love that, you know, he does this because he cares about me. Right. Or like all of these narratives that were, you know, sort of delusional, but that served this very important purpose of protecting me from a reality that was too painful for me to look at at the time. And by the way, I want to make it super clear, just because my dad wasn't capable of love doesn't mean that that's anyone else's story. I don't want people to be like, oh, shit, I always thought my dad did love me. Lots of fathers and lots of people, honestly, are stuck in patriarchal prisons where they don't know how to show their emotions. And that may well be the case with any of your fathers. It just so happens that my my dad is a narcissist and that comes with a very specific set of behaviors and traits. But because that was my reality growing up. As an adult, I've had to really work to be honest with myself about red flags with men because my learned behavior was to ignore, ignore, ignore. If I didn't like it, 
I just pretended it wasn't there or that it would eventually go away or that it probably probably meant something else like, oh, this guy's just afraid or he's just wounded or he doesn't know any better. Right. Like all of these sort of excuses I would come up with so that I could have the story that I actually wanted, which was this guy I'm dating loves me. He just loves me so much, <laughs> so much, just really struggling with that. In other words, I, I went to my father-daughter wound playbook and pulled the exact same play from my childhood out and used it in all of these romantic relationships. And it kept me fucking around with super problematic men for years. I wanted to believe so badly that my dad loved me. And then I grew up and wanted to believe so badly that these men loved me. So I just put those blinders on and went full steam ahead like I had done as a little girl. There's another aspect to this being in denial thing that I wanted to bring up. I talked about this recently on the money trauma episode, but I was never a daddy's girl, right? I mean, obviously I was never spoiled or showered with affection or attention. That was just not the kind of dad that I had. I had never known what it felt like to relax and feel safe and be pampered, right? Another thing I never got from my dad was a feeling of being seen. I wasn't important enough to my dad for him to take the time to ask me how I was or talk to me about my feelings or like talk to me about my life really, right? So when I dated someone who pampered me for the first time and who was really emotionally attentive, it was so intoxicating. It was as if I had these very specifically shaped puzzle pieces missing from my heart. And this guy showed up with those exact puzzle pieces. The problem was I wasn't actually in love with this guy, but I was sort of in love with how he made me feel because for the first time in my life, these specific things I had never gotten that I desperately wanted. Now I'm getting them. Of course, I didn't know that that was what was happening in the moment. I wasn't aware of what was going on behind the scenes inside me while I was dating this guy. So I just felt this intense ambivalence. I knew I wasn't in love with him, but I felt so intoxicated by the way he filled those voids that my relationship with my dad had left that in a way it felt like love. And that made it very difficult for me to let that relationship go, even though I knew in my gut it wasn't right and that I wasn't in love. So I wanted to name that too, because it's just another way that this wound can show up in our lives as adults and sort of throw us off course. Another topic I wanted to bring in here is fawning, right? I mentioned it earlier. And by the way, I also have an episode on fawning if that's something you struggle with. But holy shit, the level to which I brought fawning into my adulthood as a result of my relationship with my dad. I mean, just bottom line, it was not safe to be myself around my dad. He was emotionally violent and I grew up on stories of him being physically violent. And also he was physically violent with my brother. So, you know, we weren't even allowed to cry in front of my dad. If we started crying, we were in trouble, right? Like much less cop and attitude. I mean, that was out of the fucking question. I remember one time when I was nine, my dad made us dinner and my dad has this insane tolerance for spicy food. He literally would carry around some of the hottest peppers in the world in a little satchel so that he could put them in his food at restaurants. Anyway, one night he made us dinner and it was way too spicy for me. And when I told him it was too spicy, he just, I mean, 
I was in for it. He just started screaming and basically it was like, you have to eat it. You're not you're like, you're going to get in some deep fucking trouble if you don't eat it. So I wasn't allowed to have boundaries. I wasn't allowed to have challenging feelings like sadness or anger or worry. I wasn't even really allowed to have big, joyful feelings there. I have this other memory from when I was like 13. My dad was a musician. And one time I was at one of his gigs and when the songs were done, I was fawning the way I thought I was supposed to, meaning I was like, woo, like wooing very loudly and clapping for him really, you know, excitedly. And as I was doing that, he just looked at me from the stage and said, shut up. <laughs> so it was like I had to really cater to him in whatever totally unpredictable way that looked like. Fawning meant reading his mood figuring out if he was angry, if he was high, if he was drunk, if he was annoyed, and then adjusting myself accordingly, but always making sure he was at the center of that. His needs were being taken care of. I have this other memory of being 10. This was during that time when I'd moved to Austin and I was living with him. I couldn't figure out how to get him to, you know, like love me. And so I remember one morning before he got up, I arranged all of his drugs for him on the kitchen table, just like set everything out just so, so that he would have easy access to it. First thing when he got up, which I thought would make him really happy. So just always looking for ways to please him 24 seven and never thinking about how it made me feel or what I wanted or what I needed. And so of course that became my pattern in relationships to some degree when I got older. It wasn't always the case, but I did a lot of holding back with men, a lot of pretending that things were good when they weren't, a lot of faking orgasms because I didn't want them to feel bad, a lot of pretending my feelings weren't hurt when they were, or that I wasn't fucking pissed off when I was. And then of course, fawning also showed up for me at work in really uncomfortable ways, especially when there was an angry or irritable man in the room. Like I would just go full fawn. Another way my relationship with my dad impacted me as an adult was this deep fear of being in trouble. I mean, I don't, I don't think I have to explain where that came from. I think the stories speak for themselves, but the way it's impacted me has been really interesting and honestly, really frustrating to witness. I realized recently I've been super hesitant to take career risks that would have put me in a leadership position because when you're the one calling the shots, well, for one thing, you have to feel empowered and comfortable with that position, right? Like you have to feel empowered to be in a leadership position, which I didn't grow up being able to be powerful. I was always having to make sure the adults in the room were the powerful ones. That's how I stayed safe. I stayed small. Being powerful was not something I was allowed to do as a kid. And as an adult in my career, it took me a very, very long time to be able to feel like it was safe for me to be powerful and have strong opinions about like how th things should be done about my vision for a project or whatever it was. But part of that fear of being powerful was that I could get in trouble if I took that leadership position. I might do something wrong. I might make a mistake. Making a mistake when I was a little girl was straight up dangerous. So as an adult, I shied away from positions where making a mistake had higher stakes. If you're a copywriter at a company and you make a mistake, it's not great, but it's not a huge deal. If you're the editorial director at a company and you make a mistake, that's a much bigger risk. 
So without even thinking about it, I subconsciously stayed in these sort of lower stakes positions so that I wouldn't feel that terror of taking up space, fucking something up and then getting in trouble. The last thing I want to name in this list of wounds is this frantic need for connection. It's sort of like this underlying hysterical loneliness. I think this gets at anxious attachment style a bit, which I think both of my parents contributed to. But with my dad specifically, I was desperate for his affection as a little girl. Fucking desperate. Like, think of a dog who bites viciously and imagine being desperate with every fiber of your being for that dog to be nice to you and doing every single thing for years and years and years to try to get this like vicious, violent dog to cuddle you or lick your face or just like not bark at you. And it just never fucking works. And you don't get cuddled and you don't get your face licked and you just get barked at. I came into adulthood starving for emotional intimacy and for physical affection. And so whereas I think securely attached people when they're broaching the potential for a romantic relationship or interaction, they're sort of able to be like, huh, you know, let me get to know this person. Let me see how this energy feels or whatever. I honestly, I honestly have no idea how securely attached people feel about romance. But for me, I couldn't walk away from a romantic interaction, even if it wasn't working, because that would mean giving up my source of any kind of connection and phys- or physical affection, which, by the way, people need. You know, we're having a physical fucking experience as humans on this earth. We aren't ghosts. You know, we need to be hugged and held and kissed and soothed physically. But I think that's something that really has to start in childhood. And for me, not getting that at all from my dad and not being comforted or nurtured in any way emotionally, it made romance really challenging for me later down the road. It added this layer of not wanting to walk away from a connection even a shitty one and not wanting to put a boundary in place. Right. And like feeling total despair about a romantic situation, not working out because I was so desperate for connection. There was nothing take it or leave it about it for me. Even a romantic scenario that wasn't working was better than being left to that excruciating crippling loneliness that was just sort of always there from childhood on. So what can I offer in terms of healing? Like what's been helpful for me? I talk about all kinds of healing modalities on the pod. And I think any one of the ones that I've named in the past could be helpful. Like reparenting visualization techniques have been huge doing. I matter. My feelings matter. My needs matter. Affirmations has been huge for me doing EMDR, which I did years ago to retrain my brain and get out of the belief that all men are you know, vicious dogs trying to attack me. All the things I've talked about in the past on the podcast, I think they all apply. But one thing I do want to bring up is that my dad is a real bully and his bullying became part of my inner dialogue. So in the moments when I really needed to have compassion for myself, instead, I would say things to myself like, and by the way, I still catch myself doing this. I'm not like a hundred percent beyond this, but I've been able to catch those bullying voices that say things like, you're so fucked up. You're such a fucking mess. No wonder no one wants you. You'll be alone forever. You're not good enough. You do this wrong. You do that wrong. Right. Whatever the voices say. 
And whereas before I would just fling myself into those narratives of like, you're bad, you're wrong. You shouldn't be this way. And now it's easier for me to say, okay, wow, I'm really hurting or I'm feeling really insecure right now. How can I support myself? What do I need in this exact moment that I can actually give myself? Do I need to set aside time to get in bed and cry? Do I need to call someone? Do I need to take a walk in nature? What do I need? Rerouting that bullying voice and turning it into a nurturing voice has been a huge healing practice for me. But really in specific here, I want to say that something that's been key to my healing with all these wounds that, that, that sort of all lead back to my relationship with my dad has been understanding the kind of person my dad is. And that's, I want to be so clear, that's not to vilify him at all. In fact, I think my dad is a deeply wounded person who never got the help he needed. But that vicious dog that I was talking about earlier, that dog was also deeply wounded, right? Like definitely abused. So that's how dogs get to be that way. We don't just walk up to a vicious dog and expect or hope or try to get that dog to cuddle us, right? We don't do that because we know how vicious dogs work and we don't want to get bitten. But for so many years, I kept throwing myself at my dad. I wanted so badly to somehow figure out what I could do differently to change the story, to make it all okay, to get my dad to finally love me the way I wanted him to love me. When my therapist first told me she was pretty sure my dad was a narcissist, I still couldn't wrap my head around it. It took me a few years for the reality of my dad to really sink in. My dad was really wounded in his life. And because of that, he became an abuser and he stayed there. Not just of everyone around him, but also of himself. He's abused himself terribly with drugs and alcohol. But in other words, that's the truth of what he's chosen for himself and for his life. And if I interact with him in any meaningful way, I will be abused and I will be used. I can have compassion for him the same way I would for a mean dog who was kicked and hurt and became vicious. But just like I wouldn't pet that vicious dog, I finally stopped going to my dad trying to create any version of love. I finally got honest with myself about who my dad is, what he's capable of, and how the story ends. And on the one hand, what a heartbreaking ending. The girl never gets the dad she so badly wants. But on the other hand, what a powerful ending. The girl finally realizes she's too good for that shit. She finally realizes that she's the most important thing in her own life, that she's at the center and that she is powerful and she is strong and she doesn't need his approval. She's not afraid of getting in trouble with him. She's not too scared to look at reality and see that once she lets go, she can really start healing because he won't be there creating even more wounds for her to have to take care of, right? Like I decided that getting my own love is more important than getting his love. Okay. Camila, how are you doing over there? I'm, I'm, I'm listening attentively. Yeah. I think there's a lot that we're going, there's going to be a lot of ahas and a lot of points of, of mutuality as we, as we get through this for sure. Yeah. Well, I'm so, this is like, this was a topic that was suggested by a listener and I just felt like, I was like, oh, I could talk about that all day long. And I also realized like, there's so much 
there's so much meat to this topic. And so I am excited to just jump right in to this with you. So let me start with this. When you're working with clients, how do you think about or define the father-daughter wound? How is the father-daughter wound different from other types of wounds? And what are the specific ways that it impacts our mental health? So before we get into the father-daughter dynamic, I think we should just um, define the father wound because uh-huh. there's a subtype that happens between daughter and father. But before we get into that message, just quickly, quickly uh, describe the father wound. So the father wound, as you know, as everybody knows, it's not an actual psychological term. You can't be diagnosed with the father wound, but it is a trauma wound affecting more people than illicit drugs and alcohol combined. Uh-huh. Just like you mentioned, Remy, it is uh, intergenerational. You, you, you got it for sure. So the father wound is described as a longing to know that we are wanted and cared for by our biological fathers. It is a desire to know that our existence matters to our fathers and that he is pleased that we belong to him. And I know that sounds gross. Like, what do you mean we belong to him? Are we in the 1800s? No, 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 no. I don't mean belonging in a form of ownership or possession by any means. From an evolutionary psychological perspective, feelings of belonging or kinship are imperative to survival. It essentially means, hey, I'm with him or, hey, I'm with them. I'm with this group. You mess with me, you miss with them, Mm. right? I'm secure. I'm safe. Safety in numbers, basically. It could also be described as a deficiency of love, of attention and affect from our birth father, whether it was intentional or unintentional. And lastly, it can be described as a fear or unease from an unstable, abusive father or instability from resource scarcity um, or all forms of abuse, right? Verbal, physical, psychological, sexual, and spiritual abuse. So if we had to summarize this, like the elevator pitch of what is a father wound, it arises in three instances, abandonment, father is absent and unattainable, two, neglectful, father is present in the home, however, he's emotionally unavailable, and three, father is unstable, he is the key actor in creating an unstable, unsafe home. So those are the three instances. Wow. So now we can get into the father-daughter dynamic. So think first of a healthy father and daughter dynamic. For many women in hetero, uh, from hetero, hetero parents, the father's the first exposure to a healthy relationship with the masculine, right? The father is her first love. So what does this mean, her first love? Sincere compliments. As her first love, A father's compliments matter a lot. Those compliments are particularly special. As her first love and the first masculine to compliment, her compliments are received without any doubt, skepticism, or bias. They're raw, they're pure. It's the freshly paved road of compliments. It later develops into the blueprint of how she thinks the masculine should view her. Mm. The father, a healthy father-daughter dynamic, also promotes healthy, appropriate affection and touch. Fathers are the first masculine to whom daughters communicate their physical boundaries. Ow, dad, don't throw the ball that hard at me. Or ow, or my favorite, my favorite. No, daddy, that's not how you brush my hair. It's the first time she communicates healthy touch Mm. with someone who's supposed to be safe, right? Mm. So the third way is the 
that fathers promote is adventure and exploration. Studies conducted in hetero families have shown that father figures encourage physical activity, movement, adventure, and exploration. Think sports, camping, barbecue, picnics. They also encourage the exploration of hobbies and interests. So the development of the self outside of people. I'm a skier. I'm a, you know, all these things that one could, could start associating with. Lastly, a healthy father-daughter dynamic um, is a safe place for her to share her heart. Fathers are the first masculine that embraces and celebrates her vulnerability. More importantly, when daughters are listened to and validated, they learn to see uh, the strength and bonding ability of her vulnerability. She learns that her fear and anxiety are not a weakness. And if others run away from her vulnerability, that speaks more about their inability to connect or bond than it speaks about her. Mm. So that's a healthy father-daughter dynamic. Now, I mean, we can get into the father-daughter wound and how it impacts mental health now that we have a sort of a blueprint. Um, Colloquially speaking, the father-daughter wound has often been referred to as daddy issues. Have you heard that? Yeah, I hate that fucking term. It's incorrect. It's an incorrect label because it's actually not accurate. The issue is no longer with the actual father. She's not engulfed in issues or ongoing conflict with her father. Silly, silly term. Trust issues. That makes sense, having issues in developing trust. The father-daughter wound presents itself internally and externally with others outside of her father. So let's first talk about platonic relationships with friends, coworkers, family So if the father was not approving, it will later reveal with people-pleasing, fawning. And you can see that in the workplace, just like you mentioned, Remy. If the father was not affectionate, that then in turns to seeking affection or validation. We can see that in friendships. We can see that anywhere. If the father was not predictable, that then turns to attracted to chaos or fun. If the father was not emotional, that could later turn to apathy and distance. In other words, perhaps maybe an avoidant attachment style. If the father was not present, I mean, emotionally present there, that leads to codependency. I feel like I'm, I could check like every single one of these. I'm like, uh uh-huh, uh-huh. Mix and match, eh? Yeah. Um, If the father was not gentle in his words, That leads to fear. That's externally. Let's talk about internally. What happens to these daughters? Well, we see that they develop low self-esteem, low confidence. Like Just like you mentioned, Remy, a very loud, domineering, inner critic or internal voice telling them they're not good enough, they're too much. This goes back to the sincere compliments I spoke about earlier, right? Like now people are just filled with, with, with the inner critic and not enough of that inner complimenter. Okay, it then leads to anxiety or fear of being abandoned or neglected or rejected, difficulty developing trust, rigid boundaries, anger, resentment, sometimes even self-medication through substances, loose or perhaps no boundaries, focus on uh, on how others feel or think as opposed to thinking about oneself. And then the interesting part here, difficulty with parenting. Daughters are flooded with feelings that may be linked to their own experiences of being parented, perhaps like what you were shared about your mom, right? They may struggle to bond with their children or struggle to build an identity as a good enough parent, a good enough mother. Uh, I feel like I just have to take a minute because uh, like 
every single, you know, it's really interesting because I have anxious attachment style and I'm, and, and I've recently become more aware of the fact that of, of the ways that I'm actually avoidant because I'm so afraid. And like when you said rigid boundaries, I was like, Oh shit, that is kind of what I just did with this guy recently where I was like, you hurt my feelings. Goodbye. I'm out of here. And I, that is sort of an avoidant. Um, I I'm avoidant because I'm so anxious. Like I'm so anxious about it that I, I just leave. Right. Like, I'm just like, Oh, I can't do this. I have to get out of here. Um, so it is really interesting that as I have, the more I heal, the more I realize how I'm way more avoidant than I realize, even though, uh, I think of myself as anxious. I mean, I'm, I, I think on some level, I'm just really both of those, but let me ask this. What are some of the ways that the father daughter wound can look? Um, well, just, just how it was mentioned, the people pleasing, seeking affection, attractive chaos, apathy, codependency, fear. And that's sort of at the superficial, like what we when we see day to day. But once we get more into intimate relationships, this this presents differently. So there's two subtypes. Um, the first one, like you were like you mentioned, um, is the avoidant dismissive attachment style. We've got the protector, okay? So they'll create a hard shell. And here the biggest, the biggest hang up, the biggest fear is rejection. I don't need his love. Oh, if he wanted to see me, he would have texted me. Um, I will be tough. My weakness is, is repulsive. I don't care what this person thinks or wants. Okay. And as an adult in a relationship now, that tends to manifest in a way that they these women deny their own deep need to be loved and accepted, become weary of men. So there's the fear there. Um, in fact, they, they almost expect to be rejected by men. So we've got some self-fulfilling prophecy going on there. Um, you almost think of keeping one foot in and one foot out of the relationship. You can think of someone as the, the, the chronic dater who has a lot of situationships, a lot of people they're seeing. Okay. And they're often described as someone who's really hard to really get to know. Sexually, how do we see this? There's a dissociation of sex and intimacy. There's a hyper focus on hot performative sex. Anything that basically removes sex from intimacy, from emotional connection. They often will start labeling sex as good or bad. Like that was good sex. That was hot. Oh, this one was bad sex. It was boring. Boring mean, meaning intimate. Um, there's also intense rules about sex and touch. This is how I want to be touched. No other way. It almost feels from the other extent, it could almost feel clinical having sex with them. Mm. That's the protector, right? So here, interestingly, the lack of vulnerability causes a rift in bonding, which leads to the breakdown of the relationship. And it reinforces her original belief and expectation that she's going to be rejected by a partner. Mm. Next, we have the chaser. In other words, the anxious preoccupied, right? Here, as a child, you may hear things like, if I get good grades, my parent will love me, my father will love me, I will be appreciated. I will do anything to get their attention. If if I worship dad, if I then he's going to notice me. And it develops as an adult this good girl persona. 
They believe they have to do things to be loved. They perform for attention. There's a lot of fawning. They have people-pleasing behaviors. And interestingly, they become a chameleon of what they imagined others would want them to be. Oh, I did that for so long. Totally. It's difficult to develop an authentic identity. Right. So here, the biggest fear or hang-up is abandonment. And it's almost like developing a a fake or or an inauthentic uh, identity as well. If he doesn't know the real me, he's not really leaving me. He's leaving the the girl that's into dance. He's leaving the girl that's into whatever, photography. So that, that in itself is a protective factor here sexually as we get into how does it look like with dating and and, and sex there is an enmeshment of sex and intimacy so the prior there the protector there was a dissociation here we've got an enmeshment so desiring constant feedback of her performance was that good did you like it what parts do you like best of me Mm. touch is associated with love they over prioritize their partner's sexual gratification over over hers I often hear from clients, I don't need foreplay. I prefer quickies. Mm. And there's a lot of guilt, feeling guilty if their partner is not in the mood and feeling super guilty if they're not in the mood. The girl, if the daughter is not in the mood and doesn't know how to express it without thinking, oh, no, well, he may leave me. Right. So this lack of self-preservation, basically prioritizing the needs of the romantic partners, um, or taking risks, putting effort that will benefit the romantic partner more than themselves, may attract a low-committal, low-invested partner. This imbalance of effort and commitment will lead to a deeper fear of abandonment, and thus the ever-turbulent dynamic of the chaser and the distancer. We're now in prison. Oh, I, I see myself in parts of myself in both of those, like the one about touch means love. Oh my God. I mean, like, you know, kind of how I was talking about earlier, I was so desperate for any kind of physical affection that like, yeah, when, when sex came into the picture, as I became an adult, I was like, Oh, we hooked up. So if you don't fall in love with me now, it means I'm meaningless to you. And I never would say that because I felt um, it made me feel like messed up that I felt that way because no one else seemed to feel that way. So I never said it, but it was part of why the rejection, like why rejection was so hard for me was because like the smallest thing meant rejection like we had sex and now you don't want to marry me and that is rejection you know like it was so intense um yeah maybe like as yeah just coming from this like need to overcompensate for all of all of the intense lack that had been going on yeah yeah it's it's interesting how we how how we attract or how our wounds end up attracting almost like personas of the people who caused that wound. Right. Well, the, when you said the low investment partner, I was like, Oh fuck. Yeah. Yeah. But also like the way that, um, what are the ways that I have looked for low investment 
from others, maybe because subconsciously it feels overwhelming to me. I don't know. That's something I have to think about more. Why is that? Why are the low investment people the ones that I tend to like that come to me or that I gravitate toward? You know what I mean? Like I, it's, it's really interesting. If we go back to the, to to, to the father figure, if the father was not predictable, we then are attracted to chaos and to instability. So having somebody who's high committal, like he's going to call every Sunday after 5 p.m. If it becomes so stable like that, it's we think it's no longer sexy. Yeah. It's no longer attractive. Right. We're used to unpredictability, instability. Right. We feel bored when it's not crazy, a little crazy. Yeah. Well, this takes me right into the to the next question. Let's talk about the different ways that the father-daughter wound impacts women later down the road in dating, in romantic relationships. You shared a little bit about sex. Mm-hmm. We saw all the behaviors of sex and dating. We would see um, just even our swiping behavior, right? So somebody being overly focused on, hey, they look like they're going to meet these particular needs of their of my particular communication style. Like this person looks like they, they're very busy. So if they're very busy, then they're not going to, and I know that up front and I'm very busy, I'm not going to be rejected. It's sort of the idea of like this person's too available. And, or we have like, for instance, a chaser who may be like, oh, I need someone who's high committal. Then I'm going to choose somebody who perhaps has children already. And that could be alluring to me. Basically, it influences the way we choose our mates. Right. Yeah. And I think some of it's conscious and some of it's not. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the good news. And one, th- one thing that you said, Remy, that I absolutely love is that um, we can heal from this. And often we're, we're, we're told or, we're, or we think that we can heal independently, individually for this. But in fact, we, we shouldn't. That deep desire to want to be loved will actually get us to heal when we find the right partner or we choose somebody who could come to session with us and we develop a way in which we can address that father wound with that person. It could be a mother. It could be a step-parent. It could be a grandparent. Basically, when we have someone, often, oftentimes it's an intimate partner, the healing can begin. Uh, yeah, I think that is something that we don't, there's a sort of hyper focus on you need to heal yourself first before you can find someone. And I think it's such a uh, dangerous, I really genuinely think it's a dangerous thing because for so many of us, we feel like, well, then I'll never find anyone because like, I'm constantly working on myself. I'm constantly trying to heal this. So I'm always going to be alone because I'll never be perfect. Right. We get like uh perfectionist with our healing and I think, yes, obviously healing, there is a lot of healing that can happen on your own and you don't have to be perfect to be in a relationship, you know, in a healthy relationship. If you're, you know, even if you're carrying this father daughter wound, you can work through it with someone else. You guys can heal it together. And of course, other people are coming to the table with wounds too. It's not like no one's, it's not like people are just showing up like unscathed by life. <laughs> like, no, you just, so you just remind me of something actually. Um, 
And another way it shows in dating is how we communicate. So if we've got the um, the protector, the more avoidant one, in dating, them, they're more likely to be flighty. Like, oh, if I see that red flag, I don't like, I'm not going to question. I'm not, um, I'm not going to delve into it. Goodbye. Right? That's a communication style, right? They're saying, hey, you did this or, high, or, or being highly critical. Hey, you did this, 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 goodbye. From the chaser, we see their communication style in, in, in dating to be more, um, well, maybe I'll wait around. Maybe I'm scared to, to communicate my needs. I'm scared to, to tell them that they've hurt me. Just like you said, I was really proud of saying, hey, ouch, that hurt to that guy. I didn't appreciate that. Yeah, totally. Totally. That was very healthy. Somebody who, who, who chases or, or is anxiously attached, communicating their own needs means perhaps they're going to leave me if I tell them this is truly how I feel. Mm. So that's another way we see it in dating and, and in relationships. It impacts the way we communicate. Yeah, that's such a big one. I mean, this experience that I had recently was so illuminating for me. I was like, whoa, I I had thought I had done such a good job. I was I was like... I don't, I, I'm going to tell you how I feel. And also I'm going to, I'm not putting up with any shit and I'm out of here. That what I told my therapist and she was like, oh, that sounds like a trauma response. I was like, what? <laughs> I was like, <laughs> and I think like I kind of mentioned before, there's this confusion for me around what is me having a healthy boundary and what is me having a trauma response and running away because I'm in self-protection mode. And I don't always, if it's like when you're coming out of a relationship with your dad, like mine, boundaries are very confusing Yeah, uh, because you were never allowed to have one at all for me. I wasn't. And so when I'm trying to put them into practice, there's a lot of missteps, you know, there's a lot of like, Oh, what's, what's me having a healthy boundary and what is me running because I'm afraid of getting hurt or being rejected. And really like also that moment with him where he was like, Oh, I forgot telling me that you forgot about me. Oh no. <laughs> oh no. Like my rejection wound can't handle it. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I can, but I can't immediately without like having a response that I then have to go back to and like review, but I'm going to have this knee jerk reaction because that little girl who, who lagged and lagged and lagged and got so far behind her dad and he never once turned around feeling forgotten is like telling me it, it's like, it goes to the core of me. It goes to my core. So like, here's this guy thinking that we're doing this like fun, like casual thing. And he's like, Oh yeah, I forgot. Like that's how being casual works. Right. And the way I receive it is I am like a piece of dog poo that you walked on, like going to get a beer, Yeah, you know, like that's who I am to you. That's how I receive it. So with all of this in mind, what does it look like to heal the father-daughter wound, like how do we start to repair something that just goes so fucking deep? So deep, so deep. If we think of the father-daughter wound like any other physical wound, we have surface level treatment and core level treatment to do, right? At the surface level, you can think of it like disinfecting the cut and wrapping gauze to stop the bleeding. 
We need to work on self-esteem, self-perception, confidence, and communication skills to effectively explain one's feelings, thoughts, boundaries, and intentions. I guess this element here could be something that you could work on individually. But at the core level, like getting stitches to prevent the cut, the cut from reopening, we need relational support. We can't do this alone. We need to choose someone meaningful and impactful to reparent us. Often, it's an intimate partner that takes on the role of reparenting, but it doesn't have to be. It may sound off-putting to have a romantic partner father us, right? Perhaps we're worried that putting that kind of pressure or stress on a guy or whatever um, may be unsexy and just, just burdensome. Or we think that partners would be like, you know what? I shouldn't have to father my partner. I'll just get somebody who's already securely attached. <laughs> Interestingly, we, re we reparent our partners even if they had a secure attachment. We can't get away from it. Huh. That's good to know. I didn't know that. Yeah, let's 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 go with that. So let's say daughters that have a healthy father-daughter dynamic will use their relationship with their fathers as the blueprint of how they perceive and receive love. Essentially, their partners are on a quest to replicate or improve this style of showing adoration and care. So either you're re you're, 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 you're reparenting or you're mirroring, mm -hmm. modeling the same love that, that that girl from that secure attachment has. Romantic partners of daughters with a father-daughter wound are on a quest to create a love map on how to show adoration and care in all the places left with scars. This is where the question, how would you have wanted to be loved? And how can I love you comes in place. And again, it doesn't have to be a romantic partner, but certainly it's relational. That question, how can I love you? Well, this is probably only, this is probably only the third time, maybe second time that I've ever cried on the show. How can I love you is like, if someone asked me that, hmm. yeah, I, I don't think anyone has ever asked me that. And that is such a beautiful, what a powerful question. How can I love you? Remy, do you ever see yourself asking that question to someone? Um, yes. I actually would love to ask someone that question. We don't have to start big. We don't have to go to the cute guy at Starbucks and be like, how do I love you? We don't have to be that bold. <laughs> um, we can start with our friends. We can start with our siblings. We can start with our mothers and we can hear it back from them. And then once that doesn't feel as like, as alienating, as, as odd, as foreign, then we're ready. We're ready to expect and, 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 and ask those questions to our intimate partners. Yeah. Yeah. I love that idea of practicing. How can I love you with the, with the people around us, you know, with, with just the 
are friends with like, you know, I have roommates with my roommates who I, you know, I'm close with, um, family members. Yeah. I love just like getting into the energy of how can I love you and just enhancing that energy in our lives and, and sort of prepare, it's sort of like nesting, right. It's sort of like preparing the nest mm-hmm. for the, for this other energy to come in. Yeah. I love that. And and let me ask this as a closing question. What can mothers and daughters experiencing the father-daughter wound do to support their daughters? This is a very important question. Moms, first and foremost, it's incredibly difficult to navigate being a mother and compensating for the absence, neglect, or abuse of the other parent. Your efforts do not go unnoticed. First and foremost, please acknowledge your efforts. And in acknowledging your efforts, it's important that with, when you have young daughters, you model confidence and self-preservation. As your daughters get older, do not stop having honest but controlled conversations about their father. It's not just you tell them once the father leaves, it wasn't anything to do with you, it's more with me. You need to keep having this discussion as daughters hit different milestones in their development. Polarity here does not work. Do not disparage her father, but also do not create a false snow globe effect where his shortcomings are misrepresented and he is depicted as this amazing man, but wrong timing, or amazing man in a difficult situation. Let's be honest and let's be real about it. Of course, age appropriate as they move through their their developmental stages. That is so helpful. Yeah, I know that my my mom disparaged my dad a lot. Yeah, and I know that was like that was really hard for me too. I I didn't really talk about that because there was so much other stuff to talk about. But yeah, the wound of knowing that my mom sort of resented and seethed about and you know had all of these like rageful feelings about my dad was really hard for me growing up too I think that's like such a beautiful thing to bring into the conversation so thank you so much and thank you so much for this for for everything you've brought in this has been such like an eye-opening conversation I've learned so much if people want to get a hold of you how can they find you how can they reach you um, so I work out of New Moon Psychotherapy in Toronto. We're located at 500 King Street West. You can, uh, there's, we've got great therapists. Um, you can email uh, info at newmoonpsychotherapy.ca. Um, and if you want to reach me directly, you can email Camila, and that's spelled C-A-M-I-L-A, at newmoonpsychotherapy.ca. Cool. And I'll also link out to you uh, in the show notes. And if you want to get a hold of me, you can find me on Insta at the Patrama Party or on my personal Insta at Remy's R-E-M-E-E-Z. You can also email me at patramaparty at gmail.com. If you have a, t- a topic you'd like to hear covered, definitely hit me up. This one was a suggested topic from a listener. So I, I do cover those topics. And also, if you want to join the Patrama Party community, you can find us on Facebook. It's such a cool group of listeners. We check in with each other about the stuff we're going through and offer support and resources. So if you're into that, just search the Pachama Party and I'll add you to that. 
And speaking of support, if this pod has helped you and you have a minute, rate, review, subscribe. It really does help. And I read all of the reviews. And if you'd like to support the pod, you can now. You can give a dollar a month, $5. I pour myself into this podcast. I put so much time and energy into it. So if you're able and moved to, just go to podcasters.spotify.com forward slash pod forward slash show forward slash the Patrama Party and scroll down to the support button. You can also find the support option on Spotify. And until next time, baby, enjoy the party. Bye. The information provided on this podcast is for informational purposes only. None of the material presented is intended to be a substitute for psychotherapy, counseling, professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. If you need to speak with a professional, find one local to you and reach out directly.